Hallelujah. Thank you, dear. Thank you. Jesus' name. I want to thank you with Estelle, the others, for your, for your faithful giving. I was here alone this week. Just I wanted the Lord just to give me something that I could say to you. And, and uh, I just felt this whatever burst of something in my mind. Just t- tell the people... This is not a debt that they owe. It's a seed that they sow. So uh, we're not going to look at this new project as something that we owe. But we're going to put some seed in the ground. And we're going to see something amazing grow out of it. We're grateful for that. We have four wonderful, wonderful children to dedicate today. We are going to dedicate Noah Matthews who is the son, of course, of Sharon and Sajith, and his folks are here today. We honor you, Elder Sister Matthews, coming all the way from New York. Thank you for being here today. God bless you. And uh, Adam and Josie's son, Ralph. Ralph, I haven't heard Ralph for a while. It's nice. I've heard a lot of amazing names, but it's nice to hear Ralph again. So... uh, uh, Theodora Corcoran is Dwayne West's granddaughter. And, uh, and uh, amazing Amy has opened up her heart to uh, amazing Amir. And we're going to dedicate Amir today at the end of this service. In the world of golf, there, there are four tournaments that are considered the crown jewels. They're known as majors. The first one is usually in April. It's called the Masters. It's followed by the PGA. The one that's being played this week, today, it will end. It's called the U.S. Open. And the final one uh, of the year is the British Open. But this week, they're playing the third of the four majors. The U.S. Open is being held on the oldest golf course in the United States. It's simply known as the Country Club outside of Boston and Brookline, Massachusetts. The the, the tournament and this golf course share um, a wonderful distinction. This, This is the site of what is considered the greatest golf tournament that was ever played. It's the reason why golf was established in the United States. Golf was a a British thing, but the reason it caught on in the United States, much of it is attributed to the United States Open that was played there in 1913. It revolves around a gangly 20-year-old boy by the name of Francis Wimet, British aristocrats, had come to the States to watch the tournament and they arrogantly declared amateurs do not win championships. Professionals win championships. But Wilmette, against all odds, won 
our national open. And it wasn't just the fact that he was so young and so untried, but the reason it's considered the greatest match of all times is not just how Francis Wimet played, but rather who he played. Francis lived in a modest clapboard house, which was right across the street and still standing today across from the 17th hole of the country club. He had never played tournament golf, much less even thought of winning one as prestigious as the U.S. Open. And the stuffy members of this uppity golf course informed Francis that he couldn't carry his own clubs. He had to have a caddy. And golf back then was considered a rich man's game. It was still in its infancy, and so all of the good caddies were already taken. So Francis had a good friend by the name of Eddie Lowry, who was 10 years old. And he asked Eddie if he would be his caddy. And uh, there was the usual cast of potential suitors for the trophy, but everyone knew who was going to win the Open, a British golfer by the name of Harry Varden. To say that Harry Varden was an accomplished golfer was putting it mildly. There, there are many tournaments around the world known as Opens, but to a devout golf enthusiast, only one is known as the Open, the British Open. Until then, until this USA Open, the, the, the British Open was without peer. And um, Varden, Harry Varden, had not only won the British, he hadn't won the British Open once, twice, three, four, five. He, he, had, he had won it six times. That, that record still stands to this day. A guy by the name of Tom Watson came close several years ago. He won it five times, but uh, Watson's in his late 60s now. He'll never win it again. And, of course, there's no planes back then, and the last time Harry Varden had been in the States was in 1900. He came on a ship. He won the U.S. Open in that year. And if Harry Varden wasn't challenge enough for Francis, he would have to contend with another British golfer by the name of Ted Ray. Ted Ray had also won the British Open, and he would win the U.S. Open the next year in 1914. And whereas... Harry Varden was well-bred and uh, a proper English gentleman. Ted Ray was a hard-drinking, chain-smoking, hard-living man who simply said, just hit it as far as you can and as hard as you can and go try and find it. It's where golfers coined the phrase, grip it and rip it. These three made an unlikely trio. Francis cemented his victory with a birdie on the 17th hole, which was right across the street, of course, from his front porch. It really was David against Goliath, or I guess better put, it was David against two Goliaths. Now, most people have heard about David and Goliath, but I've spent a lot of time for the last two weeks pouring over the scripture, and I think I have... Uh, a fresh approach to this story. I'd like you to pitch your mental tent here with me just for a little while. 
it's generally held pretty strong evidence that um, David was born in the year 1040 B.C. in Bethlehem. Saul would have been 43, Jonathan 29, and the prophet Samuel 30. And of course, I'm going to be asked, how in the world do you know that? I want you to follow my reasoning here for the next couple minutes. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 4 that David was 30 years old when he became king. And he reigned until he was 70. It's also a very strong historical year, not just biblical. It's a very strong historical date that David died in 970 B.C., the year Solomon became king. So if he reigned for 40 years and we're going, of course, backwards, this, this would mean he began to be king in 1010 B.C. And if he was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he, so that puts his date of birth at 1040 B.C. I know from the Bible that Jesse, David's dad, had eight boys. And we know from Samuel 17 and 14 that David was the youngest of those eight boys. We know that David was sent by his father to visit his three brothers who were in the military when he first heard Saul's challenge. That's validated in Samuel 17 and 13. And the three eldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul to battle. And the names of his three sons that went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, Abinadab's the next, Shammah's the third, and then, of course, the next verse said David was the youngest. I've got multiple verses, Numbers 1 and 3, Numbers 1 and 20, Numbers 26 and 2, that prove that you had to be 20 years old before you could be in the military in Israel. Now, if Jesse's wife had a child every year, and we know that three of these boys are in the military. This would mean that the youngest one has to be 20 years old. The next one would be 21. And the next, of course, the oldest would be 22. And keeping with the thought that they had a child per year, that would mean David's other brothers were 19, 18, 17, and 16. Which means... David could not have been older than 15 years old when he met Goliath. Do we have any 15-year-old boys in this room right now? We have any that's 15? I can't see. We have one? I know we have a dad that's seven. Uh, that's pretty amazing. And I know for sure there's one that does drywall. That's for sure. And, uh, but I found this verse in Chronicles chapter 2 and verse 16. It says that David had two sisters, Zariah and Abigail. Now, we don't know when they were in the pecking order of this, but if they were older than David, then that means 
He couldn't have been older than 13 when he met Goliath. And either one of those ages, 15 or 13, amazed me because I know that David had already killed a lion and a bear before he's 15. (laughs) This is an amazing kid. It says in 17 and 4, there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath, whose height was six cubits and a span. A cubit is a mysterious measurement. It was considered to be from the tip of your elbow to the end of your longest finger. It's generally accepted that a span is somewhere in the area of 18 inches. That would put Goliath at nine foot, six inches tall. It's generally accepted that people were shorter years ago. Um, I think this is why the Bible said in Samuel 9 and 2, talks about Saul, he was head and shoulders above everybody else, probably about six foot tall, which was a big boy back then. Nine foot six, and you say, that, that's just impossible. I would like you to consider a man by the name of Robert Wadlow. Robert is known as the Alton Giant. He lived in Alton, Illinois. He was 8 feet 11 inches tall. So it doesn't surprise me that Goliath could be 9 foot 6 inches. It said his sword weighed 600 shekels. That's 15 pounds. The average weight of a sword was three pounds. Most full-size hunting rifles today with a scope usually weigh less than eight pounds. Can you imagine the strength that it would take to swing a sword like that? Not just once, but through an entire hand-to-hand conflict. Because if you, you, you get tired, you, you, you're opening yourself up. The pole that his spearhead was attached to was compared to the rod that a weaver would put in the loom. It says in 17 and 7 that his spear's head weighed like his sword, 600 shekels of iron, which again, that just the tip of his spear weighs 15 pounds. That's, that's three bags of sugar. It also says in 17 and 5, that he was armed with a coat of mail that was 5,000 shekels of brass. You, you have to realize uh, the significance of this birth for this first. Chain mail was not his entire armor. but It's the equivalent, I guess, today of what you would call a bulletproof vest. But whereas today's bulletproof vest weighs between 5 and 6 pounds, Goliath's Chainmail weighed 125 pounds. He also had greaves of brass upon his legs. These are metal uh, shin guards, basically, that went from your knee down to the top of your boot. So when you add it all up with his helmet of brass and his greaves of brass and the chain mail, it said he had a target, a shield of brass on his chest and on his back. He's got a 15-pound sword. He's got this spear with a 15-pound head. He, he's wearing over 200 pounds of body armor. 
in addition to a, a sword in one hand and a spear that looked like a long-handed shovel with a 15-pound point on it. It also says in verse 7, running before him was an, an armor bearer that held up a big shield in front of him. So I'm trying to picture what in the world did David see as he was running at Goliath. Basically, he saw a massive metal man with a giant sword sticking out on one side and a metal stake on the other, protected with a metal shield about as big as a four-by-eight sheet of plywood. There's only one weak spot, and David's rock found it between his eyes. A lot of people think that David killed Goliath with the rock, but that's not true. The rock just knocked him down. David, it says in 17 and 54, took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem and he put his armor in his tent. This is a very overlooked verse because the last two words are very important. His tent. If, if I would have spelled it, this, this is what I would have said. Because most people read this and think that David took this stuff home as a trophy of war and put it in his house. But you're missing a very important clue in many, many places. But here's one in Exodus 40 and verse 2. On the first day of the first month shall thou set up the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation. Years later, David was running from his father-in-law who just happened to be the king. The tabernacle of Moses was set up permanently at a place called Nob. And he went to talk to his pastor, who was a man by the name of Ahimelech. This is 21 and 8. And David said to Ahimelech, Is there not here under thy hand spear or sword? For I haven't brought sword or weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom thou slewest in the valley of Elah. Behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. And if thou wilt take that, take it, for there's, we don't have any other swords here. And David said, I'll take that one. There's none like it. <laughs> Do you get what I'm saying here? David forgot that he had put the sword of Goliath in the tabernacle years ago. He put it in not his tent, but his tent. I'm saying this to you because on Father's Day, please remember that there are weapons that get stored in the house of God when you have a victory. And you might have forgotten them, but they're still there. Forgotten swords that you will only find if you faithfully go back to his house, his tent. Yes. It's interesting if you study the scripture, the very next place he went, it says that David went to Achish, the king of Gath. Gath is where Goliath was from. <laughs> 
Goliath wasn't just a Philistine. He's from Gath. You understand what we're saying? David goes back to Goliath's hometown with Goliath's sword strapped to his side. That's credibility. That's like, wow. <laughs> it's just, I, I, I'm getting distracted, but what most people don't realize is that Goliath had a brother. In 2 Samuel 21 and 19, it said, And there was again a battle in Gob with the Philistines where Elhanan, the son of whoever that is, a Bethlehemite, slew the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. He's also mentioned in Chronicles chapter 20. What what most people don't realize is Goliath is not the only giant in the Bible. There are at least four others. One is named Saph. Another one is Lemai. Another one is Ishbibinab. And the fourth doesn't have a name, but he's unique because he had something that's technically is known as polydactylism. He had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. One of my favorite stories is in 2 Samuel 21. Now remember, Goliath and David is 1 Samuel 17. We're in 2 Samuel 21. And just right after this, David died. So he's, he's either close to 70 or he is 70. Moreover, the Philistines had yet war again with Israel. And David went down and his servants with him and fought against the Philistines. And David waxed faint. And Ishbibinob, which was of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose spear weighed 300 shekels of brass in weight. He, being girded with a new sword, thought to have slain David. Watch. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, secured him and smote the Philistine and killed him. And then the men of David swore unto him, saying, Thou shalt go no more out with us to battle, that thou quench not the light of Israel. What does that mean? I told you, if you were listening to me, David not only had seven brothers, but he had two sisters. And the name of those sisters were Abigail and Zariah. And, 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 and this guy, Abishai, that's David's sister's boy. It's his nephew. And so here comes this giant out. David's 70 years old. He, you know, I, I could take him. I could take him. And all of a sudden, his nephew said, no, 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 no. You can't do this. If you die, the light goes out. And here's this giant that wants to take vengeance on the guy that killed his dad. And what happens? Nephew kills him. Ladies and gentlemen, there were no giant killers in the lineage of Saul. But David produced at least four. My subject today is entitled, What Kind? do you want what kind do you want because today in the world of sports a young man is being celebrated who took down two giants in the name of golf but we're here on father's day to honor the men who have taken down giants in the name of god hallelujah 
For years, I base my ministry on two verses in Isaiah. I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like unto me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done. If you want to understand the end, you have to be a student of the beginning. And when I go back to that beginning chapter in the Bible, I found this phrase. In five verses, it's mentioned 15 times. It goes like this. The fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind. The waters bring forth abundantly after their kind. Every wing fowl after his kind. Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind. Beast of the earth after his kind. God made the beast of his earth after his kind and cattle after their kind and creeping thing about their kind. My question is simple. What kind are you producing? Who are you and what are you going to leave behind here? I did a lot of work for a lot of years in Australia. In Australia, they have a saying, when it's all said and done, all you've got is your story. Make sure you live a good one. Make sure that when you're dead and gone, you've got something amazing to tell. In the first service today, Joseph Floria's daddy was here, Vasily. I went to greet him. I could tell he was heavy, but I didn't know why. And I said, Vasily, what are you doing here? I thought you were going to retire and move away. And he just stunned, looked at me and said, you, you don't know, do you? And I said, no. He said, I retired a year ago, Pastor Hoffman. I had property in Tennessee in the Smoky Mountains. I built what my wife called her dream home. He said, we were one week away from moving into it. My wife got sick on Friday. She was dead by Tuesday. And he said, now it's just an old empty box and I hate to go back. So I'm here with my kids. But I tell you what, I always wanted her to do it. And of course, I've waited too long. But Vasily's wife had an amazing testimony where she confronted a guy named Ceausescu, who was a, 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 a despot years ago. And she literally wanted to bring her family to America. And she laid on the road in front of Ceausescu, who... Uh, if I, I think it's Romania, he was, he was the, and, and she laid in front of his limousine and, and, and they, they didn't want to run her over. And finally, when they brought her up, he said, let her talk to me. And she went back and knocked on the door and she put, he said, what are you doing? And she put these papers through his window and said, I want you to sign this. And she, he said, what is that? He said, that is to release me and my family to go to America because we want to go to America and serve the Lord with freedom. And I can't do it unless somebody gives me the, 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 the permission and there's nobody higher than you. And to the amazement of everybody, Ceausescu signed her papers. And that's why Joseph Flory's family ended up here. That's a great story. She's dead and gone, but I'm telling her story today. It's just, what, what, what's going to be your legacy? What kind do you want to follow you? Are they going to weak and bend with every wind of doctrine? Or are they going to be strong and are they going to be able to stand? Because ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if you know it, but this culture is out of its mind. 
I saw a guy with a t-shirt yesterday. He said, I know who God is. He said, I own a gun and know how to use it. And I also know which, which bathroom to go into. This is nuts what's going on right now. Our children are being exposed to absolute lunacy. They're going to have to have strong daddies and godly mothers. Ah. I have to speak at a men's conference in a couple weeks. And I was studying this week and I was reading where Paul talked to Timothy. And he said, I I see in you the same faith that was in your mother, I think Eunice, and your grandmother Lois. Either mom or... I, 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 I saw faith in your mom and I saw faith in your grandma. My question is, where was daddy at? Where was grandpa at? There's no mention of grandpa's faith. There's no mention of daddy's faith. I'm not, I'm not minimizing moms. Thank God we got them. But for goodness sakes, America's weak because America has weak churches. Churches are weak because they have weak families. Families are weak because they have non-existent or quiet dads. If we can fix the dad problem, we can fix the family. We can fix the church. We might even be able to fix this other thing called the United States of America. We've got to have godly fathers. Come on, dad. What kind are you producing? Are you going to be Saul and have nothing? Or are you going to be a David? And after you're gone, you, that's a giant killer. That's, I think that's a blessing. I think that's a blessing. I, I, I think that's a sexton. I, 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 think that, I think that's a little. I, I think that's a parson. I think that's a pacheco. Why? Because that's what we're producing. Every light attracts its own bugs, ladies and gentlemen. I have a dear friend. His name is Stan Gleason. He's the assistant general superintendent of the United Pentecostal Church. He pastors a great church in Kansas City, Missouri. This is a picture of his grandfather, Turner. Turner was tasked with raising eight children in the depression of the 30s. In the year of 1930, stock market fell in 1929. America was decimated. In 1930, Turner Gleason got a letter from a lawyer known as a barrister. He was an attorney in London and he informed Turner that he was the next heir in line after the death of a distant relative that Turner didn't even know he had. He was told that there was $4.3 million in the account along with the ancestral mansion and grounds. I did a, a, cal- a calculation yesterday of equivalency, and $4.3 million in 1930 is the equivalent of $90,750,000 today. There was only one fly in the ointment. They told Turner he would have to live in the ancestral mansion for one year. After one year, he could sell the ground, sell the mansion, take the money and go move anywhere he wanted. But he had to live there for one year. After repeated efforts, Turner Gleason couldn't find a suitable church in London. And this was important to him because his house backed up to the apostolic church where his brother-in-law, a man named Andrew Baker, was the pastor. 
when he could not find a suitable church, he informed the barrister, pass the inheritance to the next heir in line because I'm not putting my kids in a lousy church for one year. Stan Gleason told me Friday, today, Harold, there are 160 descendants from my grandfather and 152 of them are apostolic. All because he said, keep the money. I got a good church. I, I pastored this church. I've seen people move across the country for five more dollars an hour and never ever stop to ask the question. I wonder if there's a good church there. My great-grandmother Wilson was pushed down to her death down a flight of stairs by a jealous husband who didn't want her going to church that night. She literally gave her life for the gospel. My grandmother Mina served the Lord for 50 years, all the while married to a broken coal miner who was bitter against religion all of his life because his sister had joined a cloistered convent. And when he finally was able to sneak in after two years into the convent to see his beloved sister, she was eight months pregnant by a priest. They quickly threw my grandfather out, moved his sister away. He never saw her again and could only surmise about the fate of the child. But the word says... An unbelieving husband can be won by the conversation of a believing wife. And two months before he died, we baptized my grandpa in a bathtub in his basement. If my father had lived for two more months, he and mother would have been married 60 years. They found the Lord in 1955. I'm 65. I was born in 1957. Church is all I've ever known. <laughs> My wife's grandfather was baptized in the first wave of the Spirit in early 1900. And even though he was white, he attended G.T. Haywood's church in Indianapolis. Haywood was a black man, but even then, in the early or the late 20s, which Indianapolis was the headquarters of the Ku Klux Klan at that time, Haywood's church was 40% white. My wife's grandfather was a traveling preacher-singer who fell in love with a lady preacher named Nellie Rapon. Nellie was from an aristocratic Louisiana family that disinherited her when they found out she was a tongue-talker. And even worse, was marrying a tongue-talking preacher. <laughs> I was... Doing the camp in Louisiana. I've done it many times through the years. Brother Tenney, who just passed away, he said, I know your wife's grandfather's family, Harold, and I can take you to their ancestral home, and they're still a well-to-do family. They said, no one in our family is going to be a tongue talker. You know, many of you know my father-in-law, Paul Cook. He spent... The last five years of his life living with Renee and I. He pastored a church in, in, in um, Groveport, Ohio. A year before he moved here. He was baptizing people 
in a baptistry. And a young man came down into the baptistry and he said, you know, son, I don't know your name. I don't like to baptize people that I don't know their name. The man said, Pastor Cook, my name is Charles Rapond. And my father-in-law said, that's a strange name. He said, my mother's name was Rapond. And he said, was she from a such and such a parish? And he said, yes, she was. They, in the baptistry, realized my father-in-law was baptizing his great-nephew. After the family said, nobody in this family is ever going to be a tongue talker. And they're in Louisiana. But my father-in-law baptized that boy in Ohio. <laughs> my wife's grandfather and grandmother. I should have had a picture of Nellie and Ralph. Ralph was six foot seven. Nellie was, I believe, Mernay said four foot ten. He was a big, tall, slender guy. She was a better preacher than he was. And uh, they went to Boston in Foxborough to start a church. They were there, I believe, for 13 years. They left, they left despondent because they felt like they weren't successful. They felt like they... They hadn't done a good job. In time, there was a great church in Boston pastored by a man named Denver Stanford. Stanford ended up telling about praying. So many times people would ask him, why do you have such a great church here? And he would just say, I don't know. I don't know. And he said, one day in prayer, the Lord showed him an image, a vision of this tall man and this little white-haired woman and said, the reason the church is so great is because of their prayers and their tears. Several years later, he was in St. Louis where a woman named Mary Wallace was writing a biographical book about my wife's grandfather and grandmother and just happened to have a picture of tall Ralph and short Nellie on her desk and Denver Stanford walked past and he said, who is that? And she said, that's Ralph and Nellie Cook. He said, yeah, but didn't they pastor a church in Lancaster? And she said, oh, yes, but they started in Boston, Brother Stanford. And he said, those are the people I saw in my prayer. And when I was done preaching that day, he came up sobbing to me and he said, go home and tell your wife's family, Brother Hoffman, we have a great church in Boston. Because they weren't defeated. It wasn't a loss. I was preaching in Gainesville, Florida, several years ago, and mentioned this story about my wife's grandparents, Ralph and Nellie Cook. When I got done, this very distinguished black gentleman came up and he said, you have no idea who I am, Pastor Hoffman. My name is Isaac Johnson. He went on and told me about his pedigree. He was now a regent on the board of the University of Florida. He said, people don't know it, but I was a five-year-old street kid in Foxborough, Massachusetts, and your wife's grandfather found me and brought me to church. And I was a little black kid in an all-white group, and it wasn't many, and I know he left despondent, but would you please go home and tell your wife's family that Brother Isaac Johnson said, praise the Lord. And he said, all of my children are in church now. They're all multiply degreed. They have wonderful jobs. 
<laughs> oh, Jesus. My wife's dad was a, built a church in, in, in Circleville, Ohio, and then built a great church in Columbus, Ohio. I'm talking a great church. He made a promise to his congregation. If you'll give the missions, I will never ask you for a dime to build a building if you'll give the missions. And so they gave and led the nation in giving with that church in Groveport, Ohio. And he was sitting on the platform in Columbus and, and the building was packed. And he realized they had to have a building, but he couldn't lie. And he, he, he would not go against what he had promised the people. And he had a stroke. When he was 50 years old, he had a stroke. And he fell on the floor and they carried him to the hospital. And he was so, just under such enormous pressure. What am I going to do? We need a, a building. We don't have any room left. And two days after they let him out of a hospital, a man by the name of Ed Young contacted my father-in-law and said, would you come and go on a drive with me? And he took him from Columbus down to Groveport, which is about 40 miles south of Columbus. He said, I want to show you something, Brother Cook. And he took him on 80 acres of land. It had a beautiful church. It had a beautiful house of almost 4,000 feet. It was so big it had an indoor swimming pool in the house. It had a pond stocked with fish. It had a soccer field. It had a softball field. It had a basketball court. It had three brand new school buses, big giant buses that he had gone to Indiana and bought from the factory and brought there. And he said, I, 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 I own nurseries all over the country. I sell bushes and plants. And he said, I thought if I could sell bushes and plants, I could build a church. And he said, I've been here for several years and I have failed. I can't build a church. I want you to have this. And my father-in-law said, I couldn't possibly pay you what this is worth. And he said, did I ask you to pay for it? I'm not asking you to pay a dime. I don't need your money. I've made millions. He said, the Lord dealt with me and told me to give this to you. And they gave my father-in-law 80 acres with a church and a house and a pond with fish and a ball field and a soccer field and buses and a playground. And, all. and it, was, it was millions of dollars. And he just, just gave it to him. And my father-in-law pastored that church and it grew and flourished. And then to my to my amazement, he said, we're going to the Philippines. I'm going to be a regional field supervisor for Asia and the South Pacific. And I was dating Renee. Renee was 16. And I didn't want Renee to go to the Philippines because I knew I'd probably lose her and never be able to marry her. And, and, and he, he, he said, we're going to the Philippines. And, and he did. He, he, he resigned the church. And they moved to St. Louis. And, 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 and he went millions, millions of miles and and and. We, Renee and I got married. We were married five months. And my father-in-law said, do, do, do you have a passport? And I said, no, man, I'm just a hillbilly kid from West Virginia. He said, well, you can get a passport. Would you like to go to Japan? And that sounds so exotic to me. And I said, yeah, sure, absolutely. And Renee said, I'm game. And so after being married five months, I got a passport, raised some money, and Renee and I ended up in Okinawa. That's where Mina, Mina, Mina Mori, who's here today, Mina, Mina Okudada, back, she got the Holy Ghost. And, and that, they wouldn't be in this church if, if, it wasn't, if it wasn't for Renee's dad and these 
yours. I, I, I married Renee and I, 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 I've, we've traveled more miles than, 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 than I care to remember. And I could go on and on and on and, and, and people, people say, you're bragging. Yes, I am bragging. But I have Bible. It says, my soul shall make her boast in the Lord. And the humble will hear and be glad. Hallelujah. I'm not boasting about me. I'm boasting about what the Lord has done in my family. That's what kind we are. Because of my daddy. Because of my mother. My great mother. My grandmother. My great grandmother. Watching right now. My wife. My mom. Had, had brothers, but one of them was called June, and, and they all said that was Junior, but her brother literally was William Brian Osman III, and, 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 and they had ten amazing kids, and one of them, whose name is Ron, is listening to me right now, right now, in, in, in Carolina, and he's, and he's generously supported our campaign to, to build this thing. I, I can, one of his sons is, is active in the ministry. I, my mother's friend was here all week long, door Renee's at the airport now taking her home. Her, her, her husband, her, my, my dad was horribly burned and, 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 and he wouldn't go to the doctor. And, and, and my, 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 my neighbor, Doris Fox, and, and her husband, Rich, came to visit my dad in this little house that we lived in. Well, they just happened to come at the same time the pastor and his wife came to pray for my daddy because that's what we did back then. When you got sick, you called for an elder of the church. That's just, what, that's just how we lived. And, 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 and Rich Fox got stuck in that corner of that tiny bedroom while all of the rest of them went into intercessory prayer to pray for my daddy. And my daddy never went to the doctor, but God healed him of third degree burns on his legs. And that's how Rich Fox got the Holy Ghost. <laughs> and her son, Rick. And daughter and, and his wife Sandy, they have a boy named Jared. He's married. He's got a they're all in the great church in Raleigh, North Carolina. She's got a daughter and husband that are part of a church launching a new church in Dallas, Texas, right now. It's just that's all I've ever known. Don't you understand it? It's it's like gold, you know. When gold is in a mountain, it's a vein, it, it, it's not a straight shot. It goes like that. And that's the way you build a church. You reach this one and, and they lead you to this one, and that one leads you to this one. And and all of a sudden, that one's got an aunt over here, or an aunt, or a nephew, or a cousin. And that's how you build that church. My, my challenge to you is, what kind are you? What are you going to produce? What are you gonna, what's coming after you? Come on, I'm not here to talk about Francis we met in a golf game. I'm talking about giant killers here today. Giant killers. Because... Remember your, remember your biology? Kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. You remember that? It says in Corinthians, if you're in Christ, you're a new creature. I used to think for years it said new creation. It doesn't say new creation. It says new creature. And so I did my homework. It literally means that when you are filled with his spirit, buried in his name, you're a new species. You're like nothing this world has ever known before. You're exactly what the Bible said you are. Brand new. Brand new. In the middle of the Bible, 
One of the most despondent books in the Bible is, is the book of Lamentations. The weeping of a guy by the name of Jeremiah. And boy, it's a very, very depressing book. Because his heart is broken. His people, they're all just heathens. Right in, the, right in the middle of that book is this verse that says, but his mercies are new every day. Great is thy faithfulness. I kept wondering, how in the world could I explain that to you as a church? How could I somehow get you to rep? Because that word, new, literally means brand new. In other words... You and I have access to a a specific kind of mercy today that didn't exist yesterday and will expire at midnight tonight. We serve a God of such variety that he literally has the ability to expose you and I to a brand new form of mercy every day. I was driving in my truck wondering, how could I explain that to you? And then... On a fluke, I just looked up and looked at the clouds and I realized, that's it. I have never ever seen the very same cloud formation two days in a row. Every time you look at the heavens, it's different than it ever was before. And this magnificent God that we serve not only can put a brand new set of clouds over your head every day, he can put a brand new set of mercies in your life every day. Every day. I know you've heard this, but I'm going to tell it to you again. It goes fast. It goes fast. So I'd like you to bring me Noah, Sajith, and Sharon. You come with your mom and dad, Adam and Josie. You get Ralph. Dwayne, get Theodore and get Angie Amy you get Amir why don't you come up here in front of me bring these bring bring these that's amazing Amir in case you didn't know (laughs) come with me come with me we'll just give them a moment to get these children and come up here in Jesus name in Jesus name I'd like the parents to be here. Grandparents are here. I'd like you to be here with these children. Aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, cousins. I don't care. Just come. Just come. Just come. In Jesus' name. Just come, come, come right up here in front of me right now. I want you to, if you're a mom and dad in this room right now, I want you to understand something. I, it took me a long time to learn this, and I, it, it, was a hard, it was a hard lesson to learn. Being a parent is the only relationship in the Bible that has an expiration date. You're not going to be a parent all your life. You will always be their biological mom. You'll always be their biological dad or their caregiver, whatever. But I'm telling you, as a grandpa, there comes a time when you can't tell your kids go to bed. There comes a time when you can't tell them do this or do that. Your parenting has bookends it's got an expiration date while you still have the advantage 
of being able to play such a pivotal role in their lives. Exploit the moment. I want this church to stand. I want these elders to come. I want this ministry staff to come. Gather around these people. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. My precious kids, I know it's been a long day and I've been speaking way too long. I understand that. Just the older I get, these are very emotional times for me. My granddaughter got the Holy Ghost two weeks ago. I was gone. I should have the picture. I remember when Brittany got the Holy Ghost. She was five years old. It was right there. I was so excited when Brittany got the Holy Ghost. I literally scooped her up. I didn't. I, I had my shoes, my suit, and everything, and I just jumped into baptistry with her. Suit, shoes, tie, the whole deal. Renee was sick. <laughs> sick. We went home that night. We were standing on the front porch when she opened the door, and Brittany and I were just soaking wet. And I remember Renee saying, I missed it, didn't I? I missed it. I was in Dallas two weeks ago dedicating a new church building. And all of a sudden, I got a phone call. It was my granddaughter, and she said, Guess what happened to me, Grandpa? And I knew. I missed it. But I was so glad it happened. And they sent me a video of my granddaughter being filled with the Holy Spirit. I was... Man, I'd like you to put your hands on these moms and dads right now. Amen. Lord Jesus, Father... I'm praying first of all for daddy. I'm praying for these men right now, Lord. I'm asking you, God, to enable them and help them to understand that this is not just a right. This is a responsibility. This is not just a privilege that we possess to have something like this squirming in our arms right now. But, 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 but we have been given this massive task of forming this, 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 this lump is this this precious little little adult that I've got in my hands right now. Jesus. These dads, they've got to be the priests of their home. They've got to protect that house. You said if we bring an abomination in the house, whole house becomes an abomination. So dad's got to make sure wrong stuff doesn't enter in that house. I'm asking you, Lord, to enable these dads to have the courage to be able to make tough choices. And say, we're not doing that in this house. We're not talking like that. We're not acting that way. We're not watching that in this house. We're not reading that. We're not looking at that in this house. I'm asking you, God, for these moms. Precious Lord. I'm asking you, God, right now to be with to be with these moms. Oh, Jesus. For this amazing love and this bond that exists between these moms and these kids. I'm asking you, Lord, you called the church the mother and we ought to know what it is to nourish and we want to know what it is to be able to protect and care for. I'm praying for this church family, Lord. We as a church dedicate ourselves to you for these children right now. We make a covenant with you right now, Lord. We're not going to be divided. We're not going to be ugly. We're, we're, we're going to be givers and forgivers. I want these children to be raised in a church where they see people healed. 
I want these children to see people regularly baptized in your name, filled with your spirit. I want this to be a place where they see children dedicated and marriages performed and, 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 and elders buried from the womb to the tomb. I'm asking you, God, that would be a full service church. I'm asking you right now, Lord, that this church make a commitment. We're going to be a revival church. We're not going to be a dead church. We're not just going to be a word church. We're going to be a glorious church. And we're going to have a manifestation of your presence in this house. Because I want these kids to be raised in a powerful church. And I make a commitment to you, Lord, as pastor. I don't ever want these kids to have to grow up and say, whatever happened to Pastor Hoffman? Whatever happened to Ashley's daddy? Why doesn't Brother and Sister Hoffman live together anymore? I prayed this prayer for years and I've not changed my tune, Lord. You take me. You take me. If you see me going to bring shame on the work, if you see me living in such a way that I create questions in their spirit, oh God, let this trumpet always give a certain sound. Let this trumpet give a very, very clear message, Lord. And in the words of my beloved sister, I want my capacity to get bigger. I want to lengthen my cords. I want to strengthen my stakes. I, I thank you, God, for five fingers on every hand. I thank you for five toes on each foot. And in a world that talks about unwanted pregnancies, <laughs> I realize there are thousands and thousands and thousands of couples that would love to have children but don't and can't. There's no such thing as an unwanted baby. Amen. They're just people that considered a, a nuisance and a bother, but not in this house. We're going to celebrate life, and we're going to be so grateful, God. We're going to be so grateful, God, that you've blessed us and gifted us with these children. And now mom and dad, grandfather, grandmother, great-grandfather, great-grandmother, let it be more than just words, but let them lead legitimately grand and great. This church, this staff, this preacher, we dedicate ourselves to you for these precious children. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray and call it done. Amen. 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 Oh, yeah. That's in order right now. That's in order right now. Thank God for life. <laughs> Thank God for healthy children. Thank God for moms and dads. In Jesus' name.